Good. Don't look now, but I am on two feet. Can you take that? Hey, can you give that to Tad? Thanks. I was not as enthusiastic as I would have hoped. Thank you, thank you. Um, I am going to sit, though. It's getting better. Thank you for uh, your prayers. Thank you, Logan, for preaching last week. A couple of us were away at a conference and had a great time. So thank you for finishing out uh, that series for us. Today we're starting uh, a new series of messages that, Lord willing, will take us from now up through uh, August. We're going to be looking at John 13 through 17. This is typically called the uh, upper room discourse, which essentially means most of what took place in that passage happened in a upper room where the disciples gathered with Jesus. Uh, We're excited about how God's going to use this portion of Scripture to encourage our life together as a church. Why John 13 to 17? I'm glad you asked. Uh, If you've been with us most Sundays in 2015, you'll remember that we started the year together by looking at uh, various forms of, of fear and the way fears get expressed in our lives, and how there is a power available to Christians to move from fear to faith. We looked at a lot of different fears, and one of those in particular, for example, we talked about how apathy is often a manifestation of the fear of failure. And so many times when we're apathetic about spiritual things, it's because we have a behind-closed-doors, private, secret fear that I'm going to fail if I try. So if we don't try, then we can't fail. Another example was we looked at hurry. And how hurry is often a fear of rejection. Some of us live constantly in a rush, not really because the demands of life are that significant, but because we're constantly afraid of being rejected. And so we'll run from one thing to the next in order to get people to accept us and like us. God used his word in powerful ways to help us see that there is a way out of fear. There is a way into faith. And through that process, at least for my sake, I discovered that really a lot of us are fearful people. We're gripped by fear. And so from that series, we then went into what we just finished, and that was looking at the the big grand story of the Bible And how the more we know God and what God's up to in the world, the more we'll be invited out of fear into faith. And so that brings us to this new series. John 13 to 17, we're entitling Christ Our Life. And our hope is that we can take that huge story of the Bible we just considered, creation, fall. Let's see if we can do it together. Creation, fall. That was great, mostly. So we looked in, in, in six scenes at how all of the Bible is really not a disconnected series of little stories, but little stories that help tell the big, grand narrative of history. And that is, God created the world. He's good. Creation. And then things fell apart, fall. But he promised through Christ to bring about hope or redemption. And then today we're living in the age of the church. 
God's people. And then ultimately it's headed towards the king returning for his people restoration. So you did pretty well at that. That was encouraging. But how does all that work itself out in our lives as Christians today? Well, John 13 to 17 tells us very, very clearly what the essence of Christianity is, what it means to live in this day and time as God's people. So that's what we're going to look at. Hopefully, by August, we'll be invited yet again out of fear into faith, specifically by the words of Jesus. Now, just a quick word to those of you in the room who are undecided about Christ. We're thrilled you're here. Every Sunday, there's quite a few people here who are not yet sure what they believe about Jesus. The next several months will give you an opportunity to hear fundamentally at the very bedrock, most basic level, what is it that this book, the Bible, says about Jesus? We're going to consider who he claimed to be, what he claimed to be teaching, and how the Bible articulates what Christianity is. Probably much of what you've heard about Christianity hasn't actually gotten to the core message that the Bible says is true. This section of the scriptures will give you the chance to sort of, if you will, look under the hood of Christianity and see what is the engine that makes the car work? What is the core message of Jesus that he claims is the power through which we can live? So the best way to launch a series of John 13 to 17 is, of course, to look at Colossians 3. So that's what we're going to do today. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. It is right before Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So look at Colossians 3 with me. That's where we'll be starting today. Colossians chapter 3. If someone was to ask you, what is the very essence of Christianity? What is it all about? What would you say? John 13 to 17 is going to describe it for us in particular. But maybe it would be helpful before we dissect all the parts to look at the whole. And I don't know of a better passage in the Bible to help us with that than Colossians 3. So let's look at Colossians 3 together, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Today I'd love us to consider this passage on two fronts. First, what Christianity is, and second, how to live Christianity. So first, what Christianity is, and second, how to live Christianity. And let's pray for a second that God would help us to understand. Father, thank you for your scriptures. It is your word to us. And those of us in the room who are believers believe that you have spoken clearly about what Christianity is. And so we would pray as Christians that as we look at this passage today, that you would speak to us. And I would pray for those in the room who are not yet believers. They're undecided about Christ. Thank you, God, that we're the kind of church that people would come and seek out 
the message and decide for themselves if they believe it. We pray that you'd give me the ability today to clearly articulate the essence, the bedrock, the foundation, the engine of what Christianity is. Help us to understand. And not just to understand, but to believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is Christianity? Well, if I could try and say it in a sentence, the way it's been said in this particular passage, it's this. Christianity is the good news that if you're in Christ, then God the Father regards you as he regards Jesus. Let me say that again. Christianity is the good news or the gospel that if you're in Christ, then God the Father regards you as he regards Jesus. What is Christianity? That's what it is. Colossians 3 makes some really staggering claims, some shocking claims, actually. He says that if you're a Christian, then you have been raised with Christ. It's something that's already happened. It's past tense. It says also past tense, you have died. And then it gives several things that it says are true, present in this moment, that our life is hidden with Christ and that Christ is our life. And then it says something about the future. You will appear with Christ. If we could sum all of that up in a couple of words, we could say that Christianity is the message that Christ is our life. That's a great news, isn't it? Are you still with me? That is great news. Now, this is a little complicated, and it's going to take a few minutes to track through it. But bear with me, and I think what you'll hear is the most beautiful truth you'll ever hear. Brothers and sisters, everything true about Christ, positionally, meaning the way in which God regards you, Everything true about Christ is positionally true of you. Right now, in this very moment, as much as it will ever be, everything that's true about Christ in the way the Father regards you is true about you. Now let me see if I can explain that. The essence of salvation is being regarded by God the Father as the Father regards the Son. So in other words, to become a Christian is simply to say, Father, God, regard me, think of me as you think of Christ. To become a Christian is to experience the dramatic transformation that in one moment you're someone under the wrath of God because of sin, but in the very next moment you are forever not under the wrath of God but under His grace and His love and His mercy forever. That's what Christianity is. When you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, then you are placed into Christ, and therefore the Father permanently treats you as if you've lived the life that Christ lived and died the death that Christ died and are raised in the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because Christians are people united to Christ. Now this is an abstract difficult concept to get our brains around. But friends, the Christian life is not primarily a set of ethics or morals or theological principles. It's not what it is. It's not mainly a behavior or an activity. 
And this might be shocking to you if you've been in church long, but Paul, the author of Colossians, is saying that the essence of being a Christian isn't even that you love Jesus. It's not even that you obey Jesus. It's not that you admire him or worship him. It's not that you love other Christians or try to emulate Jesus. All of those things are important, but they're not the essence of what Christianity actually is. The very heart of the Christian faith is God regarding people as he regards the Son. The Christian life is Christ in us. God's life given for us and then placed into us. It's discovering anew every day that we're adopted sons and daughters of God as we sing. It's entering into a new reality created by God's word in which God becomes the source of our life. The Christian life is Christ. You see, Christianity is not a religion that says if you obey and try hard enough, then when you get to the end of your life and your good outweighs your bad, then God will let you into heaven. Many of us hear that when we hear the commands of the scriptures, but that's not actually what the Bible says. That's Islam or Mormonism. It is not Christianity. Christianity is not that we find our own morality or our own superiority or our own sheer willpower to do what's right. It's that Christ himself is our life. It's that we're regarded and accepted by the Father because he sees us as being in the Son. That's what Christianity is. Now, that sounds a little crazy, does it not? That a holy, eternal, all-powerful God would look at you and would look at me and say, I see you the way I see my Son. That sounds absolutely asinine. But could it be true? Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher and theologian in the first half of the 19th century, told a parable that helps us get at this message. And I'd like to recount it for you. He says, imagine a day laborer living in a great kingdom. This laborer never dreamed that the emperor of this kingdom knew he existed. He never dreamed that he would ever meet him. He saw himself as somebody not worthy of the king. And here's a quote from this story that Kierkegaard tells. He would consider himself indescribably favored just to be permitted to see the emperor once, something he would relate to his children and grandchildren as the very most important thing in his life. But suppose that that emperor did something unexpected. If the emperor sent for him and told him, that he wanted to be a son-in-law, then what would he say? Well, quite humanly, this day laborer would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, embarrassed. He would humanly find it strange and bizarre. He would ultimately think, the emperor wants to make a fool of me. He wants to make a laughing stock of me in front of the whole city. The day laborer recognizes the high honor the emperor has because he is the emperor. Just to have met the emperor once would be great. Maybe even to meet a couple of times would work. The day laborer would find it delightful to be seen by the emperor and sit at his table. That would make sense to him. But Kierkegaard said, 
a little favor from the emperor. That would make sense to the laborer. You get what he's saying? Take the very most significant, most powerful, most well-known person you can possibly think of. Somewhere in your mind, you can conceive of sitting at the table and having a meal with that person, right? It would be shocking. You wouldn't actually expect it to happen, but it wouldn't seem impossible to you. But being invited by that person to become part of their family, now that seems crazy. That wouldn't happen. That simply wouldn't be an invitation you would be given. A little favor, that would make sense to the laborer. But a son? The emperor making the laborer his son? That's crazy. First, the emperor would never do that. Kings don't make slaves their kids. And here's the reason I'm telling you this story. But even if a king would do that, then that would mean the laborer would have to give up everything dear to him. He would lose his family. He would lose his job. He would lose his home. He would lose his friends. He would lose everything. Can't you hear the laborer's thoughts? I'd like to be seen with the emperor and tell others I met him. But being in his family, that's too much closeness. That means I'd have to give up my identity. The emperor can just send me some money. Maybe I can get my picture with him. Maybe I can have a letter and hang it on my wall or an email that I'd save forever. But I certainly don't want to give up my life for that emperor. The emperor, the great king of this great kingdom, isn't content with that, though. He wants more than to give an autograph. He wants more than to share a meal. He wants the slave to become his son. He wants his full identity. So it is with God, the true king. God's not interested and you giving up your Sunday morning. God's not interested in you saying, I'll follow you and go to heaven when I die. He's not content with just being loosely identified with you. But if we're honest, don't we sometimes really just want God's blessings, not God himself? If we're truthful, don't we want to just brush up against God and get good things from him, not have our lives consumed by him. Aren't we happy with just a little Jesus as some garnish on the side? Well, Christians, our lifelong struggle is coming to see that Jesus is the supreme treasure, that he is God, that he is life, that his commands are our good, that there is no lasting joy apart from him, that Christ is our life. We don't need to go searching anywhere else. We don't need to try and find those things elsewhere. Christ is our life. We're already loved and accepted and forgiven in Him. So if I could say it again, Christianity is the good news that if you are in Christ, then God the Father regards you as He regards Jesus. So friends, what that means is to believe in Christ is not to just say, I believe some facts but to believe into Him. It's to put your trust in Him. It's to stake your future on Him. When we stop believing in 
self-identity and start believing in Christ, then we learn to stop being selfish. We learn to stop lusting. We learn to surrender our autonomy. We learn life is not about our own desires. We learn that money is a tool to be used, not a God to be served. C.S. Lewis put it like this. It'll be on the screens behind me, I think. The Christian way of life is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are good. I don't want to cut off a branch and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I, want to drill the t- I don't want to drill the tooth or the crown or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's what Christianity is. Christ is our life. Now, in some ways, that's really exciting, is it not? But in other ways, it's extremely intimidating. Because it is the emperor saying, not just I'll give you my autograph and you can tell people you've met me, but give up your life and take my life on. Now, if we had the time to read through the rest of Colossians chapter 3, we'd see that it says that change of being not a follower of Christ to being in Christ is a change that has profound impact on every single area of life. It says things like it impacts how we behave sexually. It says it impacts greed. It tells us stop lying. Quit talking foully with your mouth. It says we've got to be humble and kind and compassionate and forgiving. And it even says and commands that internally we're supposed to be people of peace. But how do we actually begin to live that way? Well, that's the second part I'd love to talk to you about today. How to live Christianity. Look at verse 2 with me again. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Friends, when somebody becomes a Christian, then from that moment on, the key to growing in Christ is to devote your mind continually to God. How many of you would honestly say, I love to watch me some good TV? Don't be afraid. I'm not going to mock you. There's... There's like six of you that are being honest in the room. Most everybody in the room loves to watch some good TV, right? I said I wouldn't mock you, today at least, all right? Now, you can have the biggest, shiniest, nicest, best quality TV that Samsung can make. You can bring it home. You can hang it on your wall. You can subscribe to the best cable services. You can get hundreds of channels of garbage. 
you can have all the movies, all the sports, all the news, everything. But if you don't plug the thing into the wall, it's not going to work, right? You can have the best king, the most powerful God, the one who gave himself up for you. But if you don't plug in to Christ as your power source of life, you will not experience God in everyday life. One of the reasons we battle fear is because we think of Christianity as a set of concepts to subscribe to, not a person, a power source to live from. And what we want to say in this series is, let's begin to see God, Christ, not as a theological principle to think about, but as a person to put all of our hope in and as a power source to live every moment of every day from. Christian, if you are living gripped in fear or you have no joy or you can't sense God's presence or you keep falling in the same area of temptation, it might be that you're not plugging into the power source that's already yours. You see, you can become a Christian through the right means and then try to live out the Christian life on your own. That's what the entire book of Galatians is about. People have been doing that a long time, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work any more than your big, shiny, nice new TV would work unless you plug it in. The power to obey Christ comes from Christ, and you've got to choose every moment of every day to be setting your mind to be plugging in to the truth of God. Are you with me? Now, maybe you've heard the saying, she is so heavenly minded that she's no earthly good. Have you heard that? That is sort of a way we mock people that are hyper-spiritual. And maybe your gut reaction to this kind of passage is that. Maybe it's to say, that seems so far out there that anyone who would actually walk around thinking about God all the time is going to be so, he or she be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But that's total nonsense. If we understand the passage correctly, then we would say, when we are heavenly minded, we will do the most earthly good. You see, when we think about God in all of life, then that's when we begin to live the freest of fear. That's when we begin to be the most giving, the most joyful, the most sexually pure, the most free of bitterness, the quickest to forgive. When your imagination is captured by God and what He's done for you in Christ, then you'll begin to experience consistently the joy of living as a Christian. That's what setting your mind on the things above actually means. Friends, if you want to experience Christ in everyday life, if you want to live a life of freedom and joy, then I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that's possible. 
In fact, it's not just possible. It's promised. It's the gift of God. But here's the bad news for a few of us. It's going to require your thinking. It doesn't just happen. You have to choose to set your mind on the things of God. Now let's put it practically. Is that all right? Could you imagine with me for a moment that every thought you have has a positive or a negative charge? And every thought is either pulling you towards the reality that Christ is your life or it's pushing you away from that reality. There is no neutral thought. What if you began to look at your thought life like that? And you begin to consciously think, is this thought inviting me into the truth that Christ is my life, that he died for me, that he rose again, that I have no life apart from him? Or is it pulling me away from that? Most of us don't take the time to consciously think that way. And then, frankly, we mope around because we're not experiencing the joy of Christ as our life. When in reality, the prescription given to us is just that. It is that simple. It's Christ is our life. Will we think about him in every area of life? Most of us listen to ourselves far more than we talk to ourselves. Correct? This means the steady stream going on our heads is largely negative. It's drifting away from the truth instead of guiding us to it. When you're quiet, when there's no social media, no Netflix, no roommates, no screaming kids, in those very few precious moments, where does your mind naturally drift? It was rhetorical. Where does your mind go? Friends, that will reveal to you what you're seeking in life. That will reveal to you where your treasure is. That will reveal to you what you're looking for to be your power source of life. And if those things are apart from Christ, then they will not offer you life. Colossians 3 is telling us to deliberately set our minds on the things of God. Now that sounds like terribly hard work, but the reality is, you're already setting your mind on something. You're already captivated by something. Friends, we all have hopes and dreams and desires and disappointments and goals. All of us. We cannot not do that. It's part of what it means to be a human being. Our minds are not idle. They are set on something. Our imaginations are already captured. But by what? By things that give life or by things that give death? By godly things or by worldly things? So one of the questions I'd love to ask you today is, what people or possessions or status or circumstance, what accolades, 
what health condition, what things in your life, if you lost them, would make life no longer worth living. Those things are what your heart is set to. They're what your mind is set upon. And so Christians, the objective truth is that if you are in Christ, then Christ is your life. That's reality, irrespective of what you feel about that. But don't you want to actually experience life as God's designed it to be lived? Don't you want to subscribe not just to truths, but to believe them in a way that affects your emotions, to experience them in everyday life? Do you want that? Then that's what this series is all about. It's about learning how to set your mind on the things that are truthful. We desperately need that. Colossians says the way we come to experience the truth that Christ is our life is to set our mind on godly, eternal things. So in closing, in the last 10 minutes or so that we have together, 15 minutes, let me give you a couple suggestions of how to practically do that. So all that we've said today is is something pretty simple, actually. We've said that to be a Christian is for God to regard you as He regards Christ. And we've said that we gain that not through self-effort, not by cleaning ourselves up, not by obeying the rules, not by being better than our neighbor. We get that through trusting in Christ and being regarded as someone who has died with Christ and then been risen with Christ. And I'm a about as um, transparent, skeptically minded as someone can be. And I get that even as I'm saying these things, they sound a little crazy. But the message of Christianity is actually maybe stranger than you've made it out to be. You see, it's not only a set of historical facts through which we're invited to put our trust. It's not just a long series of stories that tell one big story. It's not just commandments to follow. It's not just ethics and morals to live by. It is all of those things. But at its very root, what Christianity is, is God giving himself for you and him inviting you to die with him in order that you could be raised with him. It's God giving his life for you so that you can have a power source through which to live the rest of your life and from which to live and trust for all of eternity. that's a little more out there than some of the Christianity you may have heard. But that's what the Bible says it means to trust in Christ. So how do we practically, actually, in everyday life, do that? Here are five suggestions that I'd like to end with. 
The first one is speak truth to yourselves. The things that you've thought would make your life not worth living if you lost them. Whatever those things are, those are the things you're putting your hope in. And if those are things, anything other than Christ, then they're idols and they're unhelpful and they won't lead you into life and joy. They are you unplugging yourself from the power source of Christ. And so we all have those. Every single time you and I sin, it's because we're looking for something apart from Christ to give us life. Every single time. And so the way out of that isn't to stuff it and ignore it. It's to hold it up and say, I see it. And that is a liar. That person, that thing, that degree, that object cannot really give me life. Christ is my life. And so I'm going to see it and I'm going to be honest about it and I'm going to speak the truth to it. I'm going to say that can't give me life. Christ is my life. Do you get me? So speak truth to yourself. When, when suffering comes, when disappointment happens, then we say, that's not my life. Christ is my life. God, you are my good. I trust in you. And so you've got to prepare yourself now for that and begin to tell yourself often, Christ, you are my life. This other thing isn't my life. And to tie that into where we've been as a body, as a church family, this whole year, wherever fears pop up, those fears are revealing either traumatic things that have happened to us that are unresolved, that need to be brought into the light, that we can trust Christ with them, or they're revealing Ways in which we're seeking to find life apart from God. Dysfunctional thinking through which we're saying, this can give me life. But Christ is over here saying, I am your life. I've already given you life. Look to me. Trust in me. Set your mind on me. And friends, don't be discouraged by that reality. That's the stuff of growth. It's seeing I'm putting my hope here. And it's revealing for me what the truth of God's word actually teaches, that nothing apart from Christ can actually give me life. Nothing else is worth living for. And so God invites us through that fear to confess it as sin and trust him again and remind ourselves Christ is life. I've got to go on, but talk with friends about that. We've got to have help in order to live that out. Second, be a person who's meditating on the Bible. To know the Bible isn't simply to read it. It's not even to study it. To know the Bible is to be in it so often and so thoughtfully and so prayerfully that it begins to become the way through which we, re- we view everyday life. So setting our minds on the things that are above are to take a truth of God's word and to ask God to hide it in our minds and hide it in our hearts such that throughout the day, in all of the circumstances we face, it is the reality that we're thinking about 
we're chewing on, we're meditating on. Meditate on the Bible. Do that prayerfully. Third, read good books. So outside of the Bible, that's the first and most important. It's the only book through which we can know 100% of the time we're hearing the truth about God. But in addition to the Bible, there's lots of good books that have written. Books that help us to be captivated by God. Books that help us to understand our own heart and see where we're seeking God more and how we can know Him better and seek to understand our own tendencies away from God. Books that will help us learn how to live in light of what Christ has already done for us. There's tons of those out there. We live in a time where there is a proliferation of great material. Some of those books are available at the bookstore. Let's check them out at the coffee bar before you leave. Joe, would you hand me that book? Another book that I'd love to point out to you, thanks, in particular, is this little book by C.J. Mahaney called Living the Cross-Centered Life. It is full of truth that we've talked about today. It is simple, but what we're talking about isn't simplistic. This is difficult stuff. We want to live like we're in charge. We want to set our minds on our own ideas. We want to say, God, I'll have you for heaven, but today I'll be fine by myself. But that doesn't work. And so we need reminders that help us to see Christ is my life and I need to live a cross-centered life. I'd love to give this away to somebody who would... Wow, there's a lot of your hands. Um, I'm thinking of a number between... um, I'm kidding. If I've never given you a book, keep your hand up. All right. I don't even know your name. What's your name? Carol. Carol, come on up. You are the next contestant on The Book is Right. What's your name? I'll be nice to meet you. And you're even getting it delivered to you. This is fantastic. There's a couple more copies of that in the back. I don't remember how much they are, but they're back there for cost. First place you go is the scriptures. This is the only inspired book, meaning it's the only place where God is breathing out truth all the time. You can sit with this book, and when we understand it rightly, we can know I'm hearing from God. God himself is speaking to me. God himself, the creator of the universe, loves me. He's displaying truth right now as I've opened it and listened to it. But in addition to that, there's lots of great books to help us know them. Read them. It's funny when people sit in my office because it is full of books. I'm the last person on the planet who ever would sit in a room full of books. I don't like to read. I don't think I ever read a single book till I was in college. I cheated my way through high school. I didn't even read the Cliff Notes, or what do they call them today? Sparks Notes. I didn't even read. Is that the correct term? What? Single Spark. Spark! notes. Those didn't exist when I was a kid, and I certainly would not have read them. I looked to the people sitting next to me, 
and I pretended that I knew what was going on. That's how I got through school. I don't even think into much of college I even read a book. But friends, today, there are few things I'd rather do than sit in a room full of brothers and sisters, read together, and talk about what we see. Why? Because I so desperately know I do not understand how life works on my own. I need God to pour truth into my thick skull because I will make a disaster of my life apart from God. And I need God to be putting truth into me. If God can do that in my life, he can certainly do that in yours. And tinkering with ideas is not the stuff for smart, super Christians. It is the stuff for every single believer. And so get good books and gather with people. That ushers us into the next one. Pursue wonderfully intrusive Christian community. Pursue wonderfully intrusive Christian Christian or Christian community. Friends, we cannot devote our minds to God by ourselves. You will not do that in a lasting way if you lock yourself in a room for the rest of your life. We need each other. God made us in such a way that we need each other to mature in our faith. So things like membership and gospel communities and mentoring are practical ways we're trying to help you and I go about that as a body. But let me give you two specific arenas in which you can think about these things. One is suffering and the other is conflict. Suffering. Friends, when hardship comes, we need each other to remind us that what we feel in those moments isn't what's real. We need the grace and the mercy and the truth of God. When difficulty comes, and many, many, many times, that's going to come through a brother and sister simply being with you and communicating by their presence. God has you. God loves you. You have questions I can't answer. I don't know the answer to them. But God is here. And whatever suffering means, it cannot mean that God doesn't care. Because God entered into the greatest, most horrible moment of suffering the world has ever known, the cross of Christ. And if you don't build into life today relationships that will help you when the suffering comes, you're going to make the suffering far more difficult on yourself. And if you live long enough, it's going to happen. Either you're going to go out in some terrible tragedy or you're going to suffer a long, difficult road to death. That is the plight of life. And the Bible tells us that incredibly clearly. And it invites us not to ignore that, not to pretend it doesn't happen, not to say if you'll just love God enough, then your life's going to be smooth, but to say God is with you in those storms. And your brothers and sisters are here 
to hold you up when you cannot hold yourself up any longer. So we've got to prep now for when hardship comes by giving ourselves relationally to each other. Another area in which intrusive Christian community is so important is in the areas of conflict. Friends, when we disagree, when there's a difference of opinion, a typical person in the valley does one of two things. I've watched it over and over and over. They do one of two things. They run or they don't say anything to each other and they maliciously talk about each other behind their backs. That is what people in Phoenix do. When there is conflict, when there is some kind of spark, then we run and we join another church, we leave a gym, we go to another school, we walk out on a marriage, we leave a friendship. That's what we do. Or we don't love each other enough to sit down and say, I may have misinterpreted this, but this hurt me. Can we talk through it? Very few people in Phoenix, Arizona, in Tempe, Arizona, are willing to do that. And so we are a fractured, busted, broken community. But conflict is a tool that's a reality of life that is something God can use for tremendous good in your life. Because here's what happens in conflict. If we're going to live the Christian life, if we're going to be Christ-like in conflict, then that's going to require me to set aside my own personal agenda. Right? It's going to require me to set my mind on the things of God. And it's going to require us to do that together. Look down in verse 12 of chapter 3. This won't be on the screens. I wasn't planning to use it. Here's what it says. Put on then as God's chosen ones. And just listen to this language. Holy and beloved. Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now let me be the first in line to say, that is completely impossible. You and I cannot do that. We do not have the ability to do that. Unless we're plugged in to the power source, which is Christ in us. When we're plugged in there, there is nothing unforgivable. Nothing. What would Church on Mill be like if we did conflict like verses 12 and 13 say? It would be so radically different than what people in Tempe, Arizona know that we would have no room for people to sit in this room. It would be full there would be a radically powerful community. Supernatural power to live that way is ours. All the work that happens in disagreement and hurt and conflict can be productive and not destructive if we set our minds that are on the things above. Do 
You will stunt your spiritual growth if you resist community when conflict happens. You will be juiced up with spiritual steroids if you lean into conflict and ask God for help. I got to close with this. Finally, number five, be mindful of the daily littles. In Disciple Makers, one of the books we read says the, bo- the battle to live for Christ is fought not mainly in the huge decisions we make. Those few moments in life when we decide I- I'm going to marry this person or I'm going to have kids or not have kids or I'm going to get this degree or I'm going to purchase this house. There's really only four or five times in your entire life that you make in a moment a life-defining decision. Your life is much more made up of the daily littles, the, the little tiny moments of everyday life. And if we be mindful in those things together, Christ is my life in how much I eat at lunch today. Christ is my life in if I choose to take that second glance at that attractive person. Christ is my life in how I articulate my frustration. Christ is my life in what I do with this little conflict that rubbed me the long way. Christ is my life in how I choose to do work today. Those daily littles make up who we really are. The invitation Christ gives is I don't want to just get you into heaven. But I want to be your Lord and Savior today, your very life. Would you say yes to that? Let's pray. Father, I've talked a long time, and these are difficult truths to grasp, but they are reality. Help us to see reality for what it really is. I pray before my brothers and sisters, the people in the room today who are already Christians, get up from their chairs, that they would say to someone sitting next to them, I want to live with Christ as my life, and here's a place I haven't. Would you pray with me? Would you call me, text me, check on me this week? And I pray if there's anybody here who's not yet trusted in Jesus, sure, they may have questions, but if they fundamentally believe Jesus came and died and rose again, and I've tried to live life on my own and it hasn't worked, I want Christ to become my life. Then I pray they'd either go to a leader around the room or they would say to somebody sitting next to them, hey, I want to trust Christ. Can you help me know how? God, there's work each of us could do before we get up. Would you guide us now to do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been a...